Fulton's Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Frank Martin, a comic book writer. Frank is here to discuss the upcoming comic Polar Paradox, which is now crowdfunding on Kickstarter. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Milton, what's up? Thank you for having me. Oh, man, thank you so much. You are, you're my first recording of 2021, a year that we all have uh, been glad to see roll past our calendar dial. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, orient me. Um, you're you're based in the east side of the country, right? Are you? Did you say I'm, you're in New York? Yeah, I'm just outside the city. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Um, what what's what's living just outside of the city like? I'm I'm somewhat envious of that uh, scenario. <laughs> well, my my dad has an expression that his favorite part of New York City is leaving. So, <laughs> so uh, I mean. It, everybody's get there. I, I like living outside the city because I'm like 10, 15 minutes away. Uh, I can go in, I can get my city fixed, do what I need to do. And then I get to go home. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have to, to, to go to a building and go upstairs to the 20 some odd floor and then have to deal with noise all night long. So, I mean, some people love it. Some people it's, it's really for them and they're there all the time. But um, yeah, I love being in the city to do what I need to do. And then I like uh, going to my, back home to my house and my yard and my uh and my space and my quiet that's great that's great i that sounds pretty ideal to me i i haven't been to new york as frequent as i would like to every time i go i promise to come back more frequently because i i just love it when i go and i'm hoping if new york comic-con exists this year to maybe go um but if it doesn't i'm definitely going in 2022 yeah, I, one of the things I love is that you you're rarely tourists in your own city. You know, whenever you go visit another city, you want to do all the touristy things. But growing up in the city, you really never take advantage of all that tourist stuff. So especially every once in a while, I mean, it hasn't happened recently, but I like to just do a tourist day in New York City. You know, ride the um, the double decker bus or go to a, well, a museum or Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island or do one of those tourist attractions that draws people here, but the people that actually live here never really get to experience. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, that's that's definitely cool. That's definitely cool. So um, let's dive into your, your comics work and let's talk about um, sort of your origin story. How, how did you come to comics writing? So um, I was originally, I mean, I still am a prose writer. I kind of got into writing, writing short stories and writing fan fiction. And then I kind of gravitated towards novels and longer work from there. But all during this time growing up, I've always loved comics, you know, love the, the comics characters and the big two guys. And I've, I, I always, I mean, I wanted to tell stories using those characters, but I don't know. I, I never really gravitated towards writing actual comic books until it kind of dawned on me one time, I guess dur during college in my early twenties, I'm like, I love writing stories and I love reading comics. Why don't I just try writing comics? You know, let me just give it a shot. I'm like I could totally do this. And I quickly found out the, the steep learning curve that is comic creation. And um, I've been at it for really consistently for a couple of years now. And it's, it's a blast. 
I'm, I'm smiling. You cannot see this since this is an audio podcast. But the moment you 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 expressed like, "Hey, I'll just give this a try," I I felt a humbling was due in your immediate future, as we all who attempt this medium find out pretty quickly. Yeah, I don't think anyone has ever said, "Yeah, I just started writing comics, and it was like the easiest thing in the world." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and specifically on that, like. Um, Give me a narrow writing challenge or area of uh, comics writing that that you've had to confront, and maybe you still are confronting it, and maybe avoiding it. What 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 are, what are some of the the hardest things for you in writing comics? Uh, I mean, I think one of the key components that's the hardest, but it's also I think what makes comics special is is pacing. You know, because when you when you write a story, it's a fluid story. You're using the reader's imagination to craft a scene. Uh, I did. I dabbled in some screenwriting too. It's kind of the same thing. You're writing something that's going to be on film, and it's going to be a, a, a fluid story. A comics is a static story. You know, it's told in still images, and you really gotta have that mindset when you're when you're storytelling that this is not going to be something that's fluid when you, you actually see someone walk across the room you know you got to pace it out and you got to time it to let you the reader know that this guy's walking across the room but you can't comics is all about uh using resources too so you can't use a whole page to to kind of get that uh, message across so those two components you know resource management and pacing is what makes comics truly special as far as a storytelling medium yeah yeah those are those are unique uh challenge dimensions of comics writing um so when you do sit down to write a new comic um does inspiration come to you in waves or uh do you have a set time and it just comes um, how, how do the muses treat you? <laughs> um, I, I kind of describe my inspiration process as chaotic. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, with, with three kids and especially now with everybody's schedules just up in the air where our schedules are changing daily, uh, I have to grab inspiration in the moments that I have them. So I can't let them pass, you know, so I really have to, um, always have a notepad handy, or always, uh, I, I write a lot on my phone. Like I use just, I just open up a Google email and I just write it. Like if I need a line of dialogue or a scene or whatever, I might just type it up real quick, quick on my phone and then go back to my computer and pull up the draft and I can just see it there, you know, kind of like a Google drive or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I have no set time. It's very hard to just sit down and say at eight o'clock, I'm going to make a cup of coffee and write. So I kind of, it's always dribs and drabs here and there, wherever I grab it. Yeah, yeah. Are um you seem to be an ad hoc person when it comes to the productivity and process side of things. Um are you are you constantly evolving your tools and and how you how you do the thing? Uh not really. I mean <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of basic. I don't use any specific writing program. I just make my scripts in Microsoft Word and I, I maybe I'm behind the times utilizing all these other fancy stuff. I know a lot of my um, colleagues that are novelists and authors, they they use Grammarly or one of these other programs to kind of help them out. I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm behind the times, maybe a little bit of a Luddite in that I'm just very basic as far as actually making the thing, you know? <laughs> my big My big accomplishment was I would say maybe a year or two ago, I started lettering my own books. So the fact that I 
in completely a technical nitwit that I've kind of sort of have an understanding of how Illustrator works and that I could do something competent enough on the page that it actually looks like word balloons. That's my big achievement. Yeah, um, that's a rite of passage for many writers in comics, for sure, and um, very eye-opening. Did, um, I, I went through the same process. Um, did you find yourself that there was a phase when I was teaching myself lettering, and I, I by no means consider myself um, adept or expert at it, um, but when I was trying to learn, there was a period when I was reading other comics where I became so obsessed with lettering that I couldn't read comics anymore. I was only looking at the lettering. <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, lettering is is the weirdest art form. It's the only art form that is more successful the least you notice it. You know, it needs to be something that's so seamless with the art that you that your average reader is just going to accept it as it is without really appreciating it, you know? And it's not until you actually try to attempt lettering yourself that you could stop and be like, that's a great tail on that word balloon you know it's, it's the little things yeah yeah so um as far as um a kind of higher scope things beyond just the minute to minute hour to hour creation of scripts um what are some of the hardest lessons you've learned in comics so far oh Man, I think just the hardest lesson I've ever learned, not just in comics, but I think in any sort of art creation, is that nobody's going to care about your thing more than you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I learned that really quick when I went to my first convention and my first signing. And I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm just going to show people stuff, and they're just going to stop, and they're going to listen to me talk. <laughs> it just It really doesn't work out like that. They're not there for you. Um, they're not there to buy indie comics in general. For the most part, they're there for Spider-Man and Batman, or they're there to, to get their celebrity uh, photo op. And making someone uh, interested in what you are selling or what you're offering or what you're telling is is a very steep hill. And once you smack into that face first, you 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 you're ready to climb it. You know, it's it's either you you just you let it run you over and you just get so defeated that you kind of want to stop and not go on anymore, or you kind of rise up to the challenge and you say, "I'm going to make everybody really interested in this awesome story, this awesome book that I have." So that was learning that was uh, difficult to say the least. Indeed, indeed. So you describe this interaction in in a convention context have have you had a chance to table at any shows yet uh like recently <laughs> no <laughs> yeah yeah the imaginary shows of no no i mean like ever <laughs> yes yes i've tabled uh, i i mean i don't hit the convention scene as as much as some of our peers um simply because it's just it's so difficult in, in my life getting away from kids and getting away from the, the 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 regular average mundane stuff that i have going on but um yeah i have definitely tabled at shows i've learned which ones are cool and and people are really into comics and which ones are not and it's harder to convince people that you got something that's worth their, worthy of their time but but yeah i think it's it's really a the best way you know when you're kickstarting or you're selling something online it's, it seems like you're shouting to avoid with a whole bunch of other people that are shouting to avoid and there's something about that one-on-one -on -one interaction when you look into somebody's eyes and you pitch them your story and they get to physically hold your book in their hands uh there's nothing there's just nothing like it 
yeah, when when that works, it's definitely an amazing experience. And um, I personally have found that it has uh, cal- um, calibrated how I approach choosing projects um, and everything about those interactions leads me um, to um, kind of relearn everything because um, I'll go into a specific con with a specific set of books or things that I'm trying to promote at that given moment. And these are, these are my priorities and I may have a prejudgment about the show, the, the context of the show, or maybe the type of people that I see coming, like based on what they're wearing or whatever. And <laughs> invariably, I end up being 100% wrong. <laughs> like the thing that I think people are going to be interested in, no, no, they want the other thing. And the people that are wearing this shirt that I think would like this book, they don't like that book, they want the other book. And it's, it's, it's constantly uh, uh, an evolving uh, process, and I find it very useful. I mean, you you definitely wear as a comic creator so many hats, and when you're just 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 regular comic creation, just the, the job of it all, and then going to a convention, in you have to wear those hats, you know, in real time. You have to be a creator, you have to be a salesperson. You're in some ways you're a showman because you're in order to grab people's attention, you can't just be uh, sitting behind your table, just kind of moping about. You really got to get out there and grab people's attention and be Mr. Charismatic. So it's, you really got to juggle all these things at once in real time as people are walking by you and sizing you up the same way you're sizing them up. So it's, it's almost like the convention dance in a way between you and the, you and the fan. Yeah. And I've, um, I've told some of my creator friends that one of the fascinating things about the whole thing, um, a good friend of mine, who's a fantastic comic creator, Dave Chisholm, He's got this really laid back approach and uh, a, a very natural sort of salesmanship to him um, that doesn't start with sales. It starts with just genuine human interaction. And he's he's just naturally gifted at that in ways that I'm definitely not and some of my peers are not. But one of the things I told him um, and some of my other friends is it's interesting when you're sitting there and getting a lot of indifference um, normally indifference is like the absence of emotion, but in that context, it almost feels like the people are giving off a wave of, I do not judge you worthy. You must not bother me. You know, it's, yeah. it's like receive the signal. The signal is saying, don't bug me. And, and learning how to detect that signal is part of the game. You know what? It's it's weird, but when somebody walks by your your table or your booth, and you and they say, and you go, "Hey, you want to check out my comic?" and they just say, "No," and walk away real fast. For some reason, that's so much better than if they just stop and just talk to you for five minutes and then just say, "Yeah, whatever," and then walk away. It's just yeah. it's so much better than them pretending that they're interested, just not to hurt your feelings. The the big the big line is yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna go do a, a walk around the floor and I'll be back and he's like no you're not you're not you're not gonna be back. So um, Frank, I have I have a gift for you at the moment. You have a captive audience that is me, um, and you you have the opportunity right now to pitch me on your latest project. Um, tell us a little bit about it. The the title is Polar Paradox. Uh, give us a quick elevator pitch of of the comic. 
Polar Paradox is a it's a real simple premise. It takes place in the near future when a bunch of research scientists are exploring an uncharted cave system underneath Antarctica. You, you get there through the Antarctic Sea, and they go missing. And a bunch of uh, a trio of rescue divers are sent into this uncharted waters with a whole bunch of animals that nobody's ever seen before in order to rescue them. And then when they reach this under, uh, undercover cave system, they uncover a mystery that kind of is, is shocks the earth. So they have to they have to figure it out. And it's, a, it's an adventure kind of sci-fi mystery that's that takes place in the near future. That's very similar to shows like uh, Lost in Space or maybe Fantastic Four. You know, those old team adventures of them going off into a new new world, new place and trying to survive and accomplish their mission. So, um, one of the questions I have for you, um, I, I don't know how to articulate this, but the Antarctic just naturally seems like a good setting for a story. What, what drew you to that as a setting? So this, this book was inspired by a, uh, a National Geographic article I read. I read National Geographic religiously. I'm, I got a subscription. I read it cover to cover. And this particular story really stood out to me. It was basically about exactly what the book is about, uh, at least the, the, the scientist side of things, where you have scientists that dig into the ice and they go diving underwater and they're taking pictures in a place that, that no human has ever been before. They're taking pictures of animals that evolved on completely different trajectories than any other place on earth. And I'm like, this is perfect for a, a sci-fi adventure book. And the, the story kind of grew from there. And I think there's, there's something about Antarctica because it's, it's such, it's, it's so rigorous, you know, it's so treacherous being there, but at the same time, it's because it's so remote, there's a, there's an element of mystery that's that could just be so cool with it. I, I mean, forget forget science fiction. I'm a big fan of the the Greg Rucka book. What is it called? Whiteout. Which yeah, take, takes place in Antarctica. I was a huge fan of that book, and it was it's it's essentially a, a like a crime mystery, like a detective story in a way. It has nothing to do with sci-fi or an adventure, but it's just a great setting for that kind of um, suspense and thrilling adventure or action, I should say. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you mentioned your uh, uh, background uh, information on the National Geographic article because as I was reading it, it it felt very authentic to me, and um, I've reached a point where I, I need to re-engage with my love of science. Um, it's been a few years since I've dove back into um, some, you know, current. Uh, studies and literature and so forth, and so I feel I feel a bit out of practice. And I was wondering, like, is this just really great um, speculation, or is, is this is this like right on the edge of something that's legit? So I'm glad you you, you told us about the the origins of it. When when it comes to science. Do you have a specific background in that, or is that just a passion or interest? No, it's just an interest. I just think stuff is cool. Sometimes truth is definitely stranger than fiction, and reading stuff in National Geographic just really kind of scratches that itch for me because they, they're telling true stories about things that we've never really encountered before that are so wild. And, and yeah, this is – I don't want to say all my stories are so heavily rooted in science. I mean I, I dabble all over the place as far as the genres that I write, but this definitely – it was birthed from a science article. So that was definitely the, the direction that I was headed. It takes
takes place in the near future. So I definitely took some liberties with a bunch of the technology that they use may, um, for storytelling purposes. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have they have futuristic suits and a futuristic submarine. But some of the lines and the creatures that, that come there, I ripped directly from the article. I think that there's a line that says that they tried exploring this place uh, during the winter. But when they, they cut a hole in the ice to dive, the ice refroze before they had a chance to go in. And that was, oh, yeah. and that yeah. was, that was something I put that in the book. That was something that really was from the article. So I didn't, I didn't make that up at all. That was kind of a real detail, which I thought was kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, am I right in understanding the the structure here that this is a two issue story? Yeah, this is a two part story. Um, the first part is take really hones in on the adventure side of the story and then we get a lot more into the mystery side of things with the second part and uh antonio mastria who's the artist and co-creator in the book we leave it off on a, a possibility of a continuation so depending on how the kickstarter for these two parts do we can do a follow-up another two-part story that would pretty much wrap everything up and, and uh, end on a more solid note so uh tell me a little bit about the campaign um I'm thinking the campaign is going to launch uh, either simultaneous or right before this episode drops. So it'll probably be out there. Um, But uh, tell us a little bit about the reward structures and uh, the timeline and those sorts of things. So it's a campaign will run for three weeks from January 12th to February 2nd. Uh, I have a standard issue print cover from from Antonio that he did. He actually did a um, a connecting cover with part two. So it's like imagine a double page spread, a big ensemble piece that we basically cut in half. And part one will be one half of that image and part two will be the second half, which I think is really, really cool. Um, we're going to have a, a variant cover available, uh, some prints available. I'm going to take advantage of kickstarter's make 100 event that they kind of run every january and so i'm going to have a reward tier which with all the with kind of all the rewards but the make 100 reward is going to be a kind of a face mask kind of a reward for our times what i did was i took one of antonio's scrap designs for the helmets for the divers and it looks like a scuba uh, scuba divers rebreather face mask and i kinda, okay. i use that as a template for the face mask so if you put it on it looks like you're you have a scuba diving mask on so um i think it looks really cool my son says i look like a fallout character when i wear it uh my my younger son who doesn't who's only three doesn't know what fallout is he says i look like iron man so i guess that's something i guess (laughs) but uh i thought that was kind of a cool little unique item that i could do for for make 100 that kind of goes with the campaign you know so um, and yeah, and we offer some commissions. I always, for my campaigns, I always offer a, a, a short story commission, like a prose short story. I, I get super envious and jealous of artists at conventions that can just kind of like put their head down and work on commissions the whole time. So yes. that's, so that's kind of why I came up with this commission that I commission tier that I offer every single campaign. And I always get one or two people that grab it and I get to craft a story for them, which is, which is pretty cool. So, um, enlighten me a little bit. I, I, I'm woefully ignorant of this make 100 thing. What, what is the make 100 thing? So Kickstarter wants to promote people to, formulate a campaign based on a simplistic item that they only offer 100 of okay 
And the so the idea is you you create a reward and you cap it at a hundred. Okay. And and if you put make one hundred in your title, there's certain certain stipulations you have to do. If you put make one hundred in your title or your subtitle, they'll put a little like make one hundred badge under on the project, you know, where it says like project we love or quick starter or stuff like that. They'll make a special make one hundred badge and they'll put it there. At the end of the day, I don't think it really matters much. I think it's just something to promote activity on the platform. But it's 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 cool and it's something and I uh I have a campaign in January, so I figured why not try to to have some fun with it. That's cool. That's cool. Um the are are both of the issues around the same length? Yes, both the issues. I'm not a hundred percent sure uh, what they both are. I think they're between twenty and twenty-two pages. Uh, the books themselves, I believe, are twenty-four pages. Or and um, issue one is completely finished. So I, for my previous campaign, um, the Macabre Motel, I tried something new, which was I placed my printing order the day after the campaign ended. So as everybody knows, Kickstarter is infamous for, for holding funds for two weeks or three weeks before the campaign ends, before you get all that money. I, I right. wanted to do bang, bang fulfillment. I, so I am, I just placed the order as soon as the campaign ended. So I, the book is print ready. It's ready to go. And as soon as it's done, I can order all the books. And then as soon as I get them, I could, I could start, people could theoretically get their books before I even have the Kickstarter money. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> So so yeah, that's kind of how that operates. And and I can vouch for this uh, fact. I've I've been one of the privileged people who got to see a digital preview of issue one. It's definitely one hundred percent in the can. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And um, the early part of our conversation where you talked about um, about the challenge of pacing. The pacing in the first issue, I think, is one of the strengths of this comic. It, it really flows at, at the, the perfectly natural pace for what it is telling. I don't feel rushed. I don't feel dragged. I feel like every moment counts and leads to what it needs to lead to. And I don't think this is much of a spoiler to say when you have a two-part story Part one is probably going to end on a somewhat enticing note <laughs> or a cliffhanger, um, and, and it, it, it delivers on all of those beats. So hats off to you for, for that. Thank you, thank you. So I mean, yeah, at this 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 was kind of a easy story. I don't want to say to pace, but to structure because it's it, the premise is so simple that a lot of the legwork as far as writing goes went into the first couple pages just to set up the premise. Once I introduce the actors and what the actors are doing, they're just doing stuff for the rest of the issue. You know, it's very adventure based. It's very action based. It's kind of straightforward. And is that concerned? So, uh, it kind of just, it's once I, I put all the pieces in, in, in place, it kind of just kind of flowed on its own, which uh, I'm glad to hear that it, it was definitely definitely the right choice. And issue two is will probably launch in the summertime. I'm currently getting artwork for that and lettering it as it comes in. So, so yeah, I don't really I'm not a big fan of let, making people wait for it to to for them to finish the story. So yeah, this is I'm hoping that people like the way it ends. So there's one part of your statement there that I have a hard time understanding, which is you found the structure somewhat easy. 
Um, that part I believe, but the part that I'm uh, struggling with is arriving at a two-issue structure because um, that's not something we see very often in comics, and and that alone intrigues me. What was it? Just you had the story formed enough in your head to where that was just the natural length, or where, where did that choice come in? I think it was it was more of a pragmatic choice as far as. Um... I've been so I'm one of these people that I'm sure a lot of creators are. As soon as they start writing comics, they want to start with their huge sixth issue, uh, Magnus Opus <laughs> Epic, and it didn't really work out the way I wanted to. So I went back to basics the way everybody should and start with short stories. And I started creating an anthology, and then I went on to, to writing one shots. And I'm slowly working my way up to now I'm doing two-part stories, which I think is a good, um, I think three or four-part miniseries is kind of the, the sweet spot. But a good two-part story, I think, is very strong, too. You know, especially when you're, you're work collaborating with an artist. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a continuation story, so it's not a single issue. You're, you're dragging it along a little bit. So it's it's something leading into a, a second issue, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's out of reach. You know, it still seems doable in a reasonable time frame. So it wasn't a storytelling decision to make it two parts. It was kind of just that pragmatic choice of we want something that's not going to be a one-off, but at the same time, it's not going to be such a huge commitment that we couldn't pull this off while working on other stuff. I like it. I'm intrigued by it, and I. I, if I have a project that seems the right size for that, I might, I might be inspired by your choice there and try it myself at some point. Well, you, you know, it's I'm, I plan on launching four campaigns in 2021 on three different projects, and they're all two port stories. So I'm kind of, I'm really leaning into it heavy for this year, and I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> cool, cool. So, um, you hinted a little bit about one of your previous projects. Let's, let's talk about a few. Uh, of your uh, previous projects. The the first one you mentioned, Macabre Motel. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So the Macabre Motel was kind of a Twilight Zone, Are You Afraid of the Dark, or Outer Limits kind of inspired uh, one shot that I did. That's just very, again, very simple premise. A guy stops to stay uh, at a motel overnight and rest up before he continues on his journey in the morning. But it's filled with a whole bunch of weird, bizarre, creepy guests that kind of freak him out. And he has a real tough time leaving and getting out of there. You know, they kind of, they kind of, they kind of trap him there. So this was a, a very fun campaign. I had a blast doing it in October, uh, perfect Halloween time. And it really, it really resonated with people. I got a great response from it. And it's, it's weird when you do something that's so bizarre and so out there. All these guests are so weird and so freaky. I had a really fun time just kind of coming up with random insane dialogue for them to say. Okay. And, and it's, it's when you do something that's so surreal, it really, it's, it's like surrealist horror, you know? And when you do something that, that's strange, you never know how it's going to resonate with people. Mm-hmm. And, and people dug it. So I, I, I guess it was a, a risk worth taking there. And the other project I was going to ask you about is was uh, an anthology, uh, Modern Testament. Yeah, Modern Testament was – that was kind of the – when I talked about doing short stories going back to the beginning of my kind of comics writing career, uh, Modern Testament was my baby. That was kind of my way of writing short kind of – 
could be five, uh, eight, ten page stories. And I worked with a whole bunch of artists. And at the end, kind of came up with like 16 short <laughs> stories. And uh, this was my first Kickstarter campaign was a uh, an anthology, an actual collection of all the stories. It's, it was like 160 pages long or something. And that was kind of my first foray into my comics. It was kind of my comics boot camp in a way because I wrote in so many different so many different stories, so many different genres, uh, with so many different art teams that I really it, it was a great experience just having all because each short story was like a new project. You know, I'm it's like I'm starting this from scratch, getting a team together mm-hmm. and, and working on a, a totally new set of characters with a totally new story. So it was it was very cool to to get all of those compiled into such a short period of time. That does seem quite a, a brutal boot camp. <laughs> That's almost like the Navy SEAL of comics boot camps right there. <laughs> it was a little bit, but you know, it's, uh, I look back on some of those stories and it's just, it's really cool to, to flip through the book and, and recall, you know, the experience I had with each different one, because it's not like one fluid experience from beginning to end. It was mm-hmm. each its own little journey in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to circle back real quick on Macabre Motel. Um, is horror a genre that you are naturally a big fan of, or, or, or well versed in creating, or not? Uh, yeah. I think I think I would. I think I'm definitely a big horror guy. I love horror as a fan. I also think just horror in general is just a really fun genre. You know, just the uh, the having the goal of to scare or to frighten uh, the macabre motel. I, I don't call it really gory horror. I, but uh, the word people kept coming back to when reading it was, it was super unsettling, you know, which I, I think is, is, was a very cool, I call it, I, I consider it a compliment, you know, to, to write a story that wasn't meant to really frighten people, but to unsettle them. And I, I thought that was, that was great to hear. So, so yeah, I love, I think horror is great. I, and there's so many different avenues of horror that you can kind of come at things from. You can do uh, serial killers or you could do supernatural horror, or you could do like something that's more along the lines of environmental horror, you know, somebody stuck in a cave or something. So there's so many different ways to tell a horror story under that big umbrella. I am going to temporarily, um, steal some of your time here and, and press you a little bit further on this because it just so happens I'm tipping my toes into the horror genre for the first time myself. Ooh. And and I, I must confess, I hope this doesn't ruin any potential readership I may have on this project. Um, I'm a bit new to it and I'm, I'm not necessarily a routine connoisseur of the genre. I know it's a very popular genre in indie comics right now. And um, I'm a little confused. You called it fun, but at the root of comics or at the root of horror, it's it's either going to um, scare you, make you fearful, and being scared and fearful doesn't seem fun to me. And it's going to put its characters through either uh, intense physical pain or freak them out, um, and that's not fun. So. Why, why should we seek this out in our leisure time as an avenue for quote-unquote entertainment? M- Millen, are you a horror fan? 
<laughs> you sound you're like I'm I'm taking this new endeavor endeavor, but it's torturous to write. I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm finding it quite the opposite. Like I was very I was very trepidatious going in, but now that I've started, I've basically got the whole story mapped out and I've got the first scene scripted and I'm, it's a total pleasure. I'm, I'm loving it. And maybe this is a, a gear that I didn't realize that I might be able to drive in, but I'm still, I still don't understand the genre yet. So this is, this is a very broad generalization. I don't want anybody to, to really take my words as golden here. But for the, for the most part, what I've kind of understand that you see a lot of comedians, some of the funniest people in the world are the most tortured people behind the scenes. You know, they're, they're, oh, yeah. their, yeah. com- their comedy comes from some such a place of, um, I don't want to say despair, but, but heartache that they, they, they put on a face. They force themselves to be comedic because that's the only way to battle what's going on within them. And meanwhile, yeah. some of the people that make the goriest, meanest, uh, most violent content you could ever imagine are some of the nicest and happiest people because <laughs> they – That I is so like, true. That is so true. So, I mean, it's just – there's there's also – they've done studies that in times of um, – political turmoil like now that um horror movies see a spike in popularity really yes that's interesting so people i mean people have studied this and they they find out that yeah horror does well in times of turmoil and there's something about taking all your anxieties whether they're internal or external and focusing them on a work of art and putting all that terror and all that anxiety and all that fear on the screen or on the page that it's, it's like, it's a stress reliever, you know, it's a form of therapy in a way. So just the, the ability as a writer to get all your darkest desires out into, into an imaginary setting is just, it's just a blast, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any, um, insights or intuitions on you know even though you're in this sort of heightened realm of when you're doing horror there is a there is a sort of sweet spot because when you when you're doing some sort of moment of uh, of, of violence or, or or just creepiness um there's obviously a, a, some sort of invisible line that you can you can accidentally go over um and as someone who is uh, as as less well versed in the terrain as others, I'm I'm a little trepidatious about. I I, I think I'm probably going to overstep the lines a few times, and I'm gonna I, I need to figure out how to know where the lines are, and I don't know that yet. Um, I think I think if you're worried about stepping over the line, you're not really close to a line, to be honest with you. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're that worried about where the line is, the people that go over the line don't even see lines. You know, they're just, they're just blowing, they're just going full steam ahead. Just mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, for, for me personally, whether it's comedy or whether it's horror, the, the ultimate goal is not to make someone laugh or to scare someone, the ultimate goal is just to tell a good story. You know, if you if yeah. you tell a good story with with those goals in mind, the the terror and the fear 
would, will come later on. You know, they'll just come na as naturally as part of the story. But if you try to force a situation in the story meant to scare someone, it's going to come off contrived and it's yeah. going to come off fake. You know, just yeah. just just tell a good story in in, in, a, in a in a terrifying setting and just let the terror just come on its own. That's good advice. That's good advice. Thank you. Thank you. So we've um, we've talked a little bit about your present with Polar Paradox. We've talked a little bit about your past with Macabre Motel and Modern Testament. Let's uh, speculate on on some of your future. You've you've already got an ambitious year uh, lined up. Um, is it premature to name any titles or give any sort of uh, preview of what? what those are going to be like? No, no, I got a, I have an email list. I sent blasts out. So I told everybody when I'm, when I'm kind of planning to hope and do for the year. So, um, my campaign schedule is, is probably going to be January is polar paradox. And then my next one will be in the spring. Uh, that will be a book called the last homicide, which is going to be like a, a crime detective mystery, noirish kind of story, kind of like a throwback to, to the golden age of Hollywood, you know, double indemnity and, and Maltese Falcon, that kind of stuff. I'm always game for that. So it's, it, I mean, it takes place in the modern setting, but it's definitely, it, it's a kind of a hard boiled pulp noir story. It's just about two detectives. They come across a, the, the premise is, is that on the eve of, of a detective's retirement, he comes across the murder of a mob boss's son. So um, he has to solve this last homicide before, before the two the two mobs uh, started gang war that kind of erupt in the city, so it's good. he's got to he's got to figure it out. So that that should be a lot of fun. That's another like I said, two parter. Yeah, the, let me go ahead and insert the take my money now gif right here. <laughs> I, like, I like this one. So I mean, it's it, I find I find that a difficult genre to write, mainly because you can't you you can't rely on like an action scene to, to push the story forward, you know, to grab a viewer's attention. So it's not like a polar paradox where they're diving and they're facing all these creatures underwater, or let's say a space thing where they have a big space sci-fi battle. This is definitely just a, a murder mystery where it's very story heavy, plot heavy, where they have to figure things out. So I, hopefully when people read it, they're not feeling bored and it's, it's captivating them. Excellent. And is that one also going to be a two-parter? Yeah, that's that's a two-parter. Uh, that's spring, and then the summer will be the part two of the polar paradox. And then uh, to wrap things up for my year, come the fall, hopefully again in October, it, I'm going to do like it's a um, kind of a I don't want to call it a black comedy kind of horror story, but it's definitely a tongue in cheek kind of uh, in your face horror over the top horror kind of like the burbs you know that that old tom hanks movie yeah uh so and the, the premise of that is uh two plumbers visit this old decrepit mansion and they go into a basement and they kind of they encounter this uh let's just say it's a heavily lovecraft inspired kind of it, uh, adventure that they kind of go on okay. they discover in the basement. So I kind of started this story uh, with, under the working title, like Lovecraft Plumbers. So this, that's just kind of kind of how it goes on. And that book is called Pipe Creepers, which I think kind of sums up the, the overall tone. Cool, cool, cool. Well, those sound very interesting. Yeah. Now let's, uh, let's play a hypothetical game. Um, uh, let's say... Uh, Mr. or Mrs. Comics, whoever is in charge of the entire industry 
knocks on your door one day and says, hello, I am Mrs. Comics. I am in charge of the entire comics industry. Uh, you can work on whatever licensed property you want. Um, is there one that entices you? Uh, is there one that entices me? I would say the the ultimate uh, unattainable goal. I'll just say unattainable. Uh, my my holy grail would be to do a run on Amazing Spider-Man. You know, I would. I, I grew up. Spider Man was was my book. Uh, that's kind of the one book that, no matter who's writing it or how bad I think it is, I'll also, always pick it up every month or every week. It seems that they're putting it out now. Um, right. But but as far as in in the short term, what I would love to do, I mean, I would love to to work on some some other. I don't call them B characters, but some kind of you know lesser known characters. I'm a big Man Thing fan. I love to work on Man Thing. Uh, I've always wanted to tell a tale in the back of my head. I've had for for Shocker, the Spider-Man villain. You know, I, oh, okay. I, I, I really, I don't know. There's something about taking side characters that never that people know, but have never really had their their time to shine in the spotlight, and kind of giving them that moment to to have a story revolve around. So I would I would kind of love those opportunities. So in addition to getting whatever gig you want in the comics future uh, you also have the opportunity to reform certain aspects of the industry with this hypothetical what, what are some things you'd like to see change in the industry in general oh um that's a loaded question <laughs> yes indeed and i advise you to avoid it as much as possible <laughs> you know what one thing that's always bothered me about comics and this will never change but um uh, temporary deaths, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that will ever change because just because these IPs are so popular, they've been around for so long, uh, that everybody's going to eventually come back. But I would love to see an instance where, um, uh, either Marvel or DC promoted an event with a character who dies and it's a permanent death, you know? It's like there's no coming back for this person. I don't know what they would do to make that kind of foolproof, whether or not they would sell off the rights or something to the characters so that they can never make a story with them again. But, um, but yeah, I just – I don't know. There's something hollow about about character death that just doesn't have any emotional weight to them. You know, Not that I, I haven't read any com- comic stories with any emotional weight. It's just that it's like everything eventually returns to the status quo. So I, I really feel that um, any death is just kind of like, okay, let's get to the end of the story. And then six months down the line when they come back. So, Right. So um, I've got just a couple of questions to wrap up here. Um, we've got a standard question that we ask on the program of everybody. Um, what's on your radar these days? What's on your cultural radar? What are you reading or watching that you can recommend? Oh, um. I'm watching pretty much whatever everybody else is watching. You know, uh, Cobra Kai, I just finished watching it with my wife. I think season three was phenomenal. I really, I really dug it. Uh, you know, you know what's cool about Cobra Kai is that – do you watch the show? I do. I love it. But I just recently did a major uh, life event moving. So um, I only just got to start it yesterday. So I'm only one episode in. Oh, for the season three? For season three, yes. So I think I think Cobra Kai is like a it's a masterclass in tone, you know. It it really mm-hmm. hits that sweet spot of tone where you can have gigantic karate battles, and then you can have really heartfelt moments, and then really silly comedy. You know, it's really hard to 
to find a tone for a story that balances and juggles all of those. So I think that that's that would that's a it's they do a really good job of accomplishing all those things and yet mm-hmm. not overplaying its hand on any of them. I agree, and I'm I'm so glad to hear that uh, season three continues to hold up. That's that's great to hear. I mean, I've heard I've seen more people posting mixed results about it than the other two, but uh, I dug it. I really liked it. Um, what else, what else am I am I watching? Uh, uh, I'm watching. Uh, this my my wife likes watching the Sabrina on Netflix. Um, the the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, mm-hmm. which is, I think that's on its final season. Oh, you know what? You know what's coming back that that we both really loved was Snowpiercer, the TV show on TNT. <laughs> so, uh, are you familiar? How with far, I, I read the comic and saw the movie. How far along are they on the show? This will be season two that's coming up. Okay. Okay. So, and it was very bizarre because they showed season one this past summer, and then as soon as the season finale ended, they started with a, a preview, a commercial for season two. And I'm like, I've never seen a show wrap up and then they immediately go into a an advertisement for the second season. Like they already filmed it, like back to back or something. Which I thought wow. was, which I thought was kind of interesting. So uh so yeah, I was I've never seen the movie. I've never had any other experience with it other than the show. But I think it was when it was airing, it was it was kind of the show that I was looking forward to every week. You know, I I'm a big DVR guy. I love DVRing things and then watching them at my leisure. But when a show really hooks me, I can tell because I watch it as as soon as it's the on. Like I wait ten minutes mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, let's go into it. Cool. Well, Frank, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, just so that everyone else can know, I think. I think we'll put this in the show notes, but just in case, um, where can where can we find you on social media? Uh, real simple. I'm Frank the Writer, so you can find me frankthewriter.com. Uh, also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, my handle for all three is at frankthewriter. Cool, cool. This is very memorable. Well, thank you so much for coming along, and best of luck on Polar Paradox and all of your other projects you have lined up for 2021. You too, Milan. Thank you so much. And hopefully you definitely get in that horror rhythm and, and enjoy. Uh, I don't know what it's about, but hopefully uh, you find some place to chop somebody up in that story. <laughs> all right. All right. I will do my best and I'll take your advice. Well, thanks so much, dude. You too. You too.